Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Journal of Neurophysiology's podcast series. Today, we are joined by senior author, Dr. Joseph Galea of the recently published manuscript titled, The Dissociable Effects of Reward on Sequential Motor Behavior. Hosting today's podcast is Editor-in-Chief, Professor Nino Ramirez. So let's get started. Hi, Nino. Hi, Jamie, and hi, Joseph. So many thanks for participating in our podcast series where we discuss the mechanism of reward, but also punishment in motor learning. But before we begin, please let me introduce you to our listeners. So Dr. Joseph Galea is the deputy head of research and reader in modern neuroscience in the School of Psychology at the University of Birmingham, where he also uh, received his PhD in bimanual coordination under the mentorship of Professor Chris Mayall. After completing his PhD, Dr. Galea did his postdoctoral training at Johns Hopkins University, working with Professor Pablo Chalnik, where he studied the neural correlates of modal learning. And then subsequently, he moved back to the UK, where he became a senior research fellow at the University of College of London to, to study motor deficits in Parkinson patients under the mentorship of Professor John Rothwell. So as you can see, Dr. Galea has broad interest in motor control and he employs behavioral, non-invasive stimulation, brain imaging, genetics, pharmacological techniques in order to better understand how the brain controls and learns movements in health and disease. Now, Dr. Galea has published several high-profile papers on the role of reward and punishment in motor learning and the retaining of motor skills, which is also the general topic of uh, today's podcast. Now, from the broader perspective, seeking reward and avoiding punishment are fundamental motivational factors that shape behavior in all animals, including humans. And uh, while much research has been done in understanding reward and punishment during cognitive decision-making tasks, there are many open questions when it comes to motor behavior. And important for our discussion today is that there are many aspects of motor behavior and I find it very fascinating that different aspects seem to respond differently to reward and punishment. And the recent work by Dr. Galea specifically suggested there are dissociable effects, for example, on procedural and skill motor learning. Reward and punishment-based feedback also differentially affects motor adaptation, specifically error-based motor learning. And unraveling the effects and mechanism of positive and negative feedback is important to motivate healthy subjects to acquire skills. So, but it is also clinically important in the context of rehabilitation to improve motor deficits following an illness or injury. So you can see there's a lot of implication for teachers, for uh, coaches and for rehabilitation uh, clinicians. So today we will specifically discuss the role of positive motivational feedback in complex motor sequences and will focus on your recently published paper in the Journal of Neurophysiology entitled The Dissociable Effects of Reward on Sequential Motor Behavior. And one of the major take-home messages, as I said, uh, resulting from a series of your papers is that different aspects of motor learning are differentially sensitive to rewards. And the sensitivity also has different time courses. So to begin our conversation, why don't you provide the listener with a broader overview describing the different types of motor learning behaviors that you studied, such as procedural motor learning, skill motor learning, and error-based motor learning or motor adaptation and sequential motor learning. So it's lots of different types of motor learning, but 
but it's it's important for understanding our discussion today. So, Joseph, please go ahead. Thanks, Nino, for having me. Uh, so, yeah, I suppose that there's there's a range of of processes which are under, under the umbrella of motor learning, and you've got kind of the the one which I've looked into a lot, which is sensory motor um, adaptation, which is thought to be an implicit process in which you correct for errors um, within uh, already learned movements. Uh, responding to kind of uh, uh, changes in the environment. And examples include things like wearing a heavy backpack when walking or using a new mouse with a different sensitivity. They cause initial errors and you need to correct those movements to return to a normal level of performance. You've got sequence learning, which is learning the temporal and spatial relationship between um, sequential actions. And they're um, things like learning piano, typing a, a, a phone number, um, you've got skill learning, which is often thought to be termed de, de novo learning, where you're le actually learning a new in, um, internal model. I suppose these would be a good example of, of de novo learning would be when you've never touched a golf club before and you learn trying to learn how to swing a golf club. Um, it's also been shown that within uh, within an experiment context, things like mirror drawing uh, re represent kind of the de novo learning process. Um, a few more, you've got reward-based learning, which is, you know, operant conditioning, uh, reinforcement learning, where you're exploring through trial and error different actions until you get a reward. And then because of that reward, you're likely to reinforce and, and, and repeat that action. And then you also avoid uh, punishing uh, actions. And this would be kind of the learning where a coach should be providing or shaping your actions based on, on rewarding feedback. Um, Cognitive strategies is where you're developing a, an explicit strategy or awareness of a particular task, sometimes known as declarative learning. This can often be the initial part of other learning processes. So, for example, in de novo learning, you might develop a, a cognitive strategy to begin with, and this slowly turns into more of an automatic process. And so that leads into the final learning process with more, more like habit learning, where you've learned a kind of a stimulus response and you perform that action even though the outcome may no longer be beneficial. And so, for example, incorrectly typing uh, an old bank PIN code, you perform that action, even though it's no longer beneficial and there's actually an error. So they're kind of the big ranges. And what we've done, I suppose, in the motor learning world is try to isolate all these different processes. I think it's important to remember that in the real world context, and even in a lot of the lab-based studies we look at, these things interact. They're not isolated. They can be beneficial to one another, but they can also interfere with one another as well. Very fascinating, you know. And I, I can, I can see that there's also a lot of temporal, sequential learning process going on. If you, if you think, let's say you learn a piece of piano or whatever, you first probably learn it without much musicality in there, and then once you know it, then it becomes musical, and then you add another dimension to the same thing that you learn. So it's, it's a you know, or skiing, you know, like once you know skiing, then then you are keep really learning. You can increase your deep, yeah. And there's, mm. a, there's a lot of work looking at the, the temple component, especially by people like Jorn Didrikson and Katya Kanich, who have looked at those kind of concepts and how much it generalizes or doesn't sometimes. Yeah, perfect. So we will talk a lot about the reward on the different aspects of learning and we go more deeper, but maybe could you also give us first like an, an, a general kind of an idea of, how punishment and reward affects the different aspects of motor learning. So, so people uh, understand a little bit, you know, where we will be going in this discussion yeah. today. 
So you, you, you can, I suppose the first thing to, 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 to highlight is that you can isolate reward and punishment-based learning independently. So for example, depending on the kind of feedback you give people, you can, especially in the task domain, uh, within experimental domain, you can look at reward or punishment independent of all these other learning processes. So, for example, if you if people make a reaching movement and you don't have don't give them any visual feedback, all you provide with them is a, a a rewarding sound, or for example, when they perform the action they want to perform or you want them to perform, and they're simply learning through reward. Because this isn't a particularly informative process, it's a very slow, variable process which uh, involves trial and error. But we can isolate the reward and, uh, and, and punishment uh, process. As again, what I said, it's a very, usually a very slow process because it's trial and error. But also once you've found that action that is rewarding, you usually retain it for a long period of time. But then what was also done and what I've, I've done a lot in, in my previous work is combine this reward-based feedback with other forms of learning. So, for example, I'll, I've done a lot in terms of uh, sensory remote adaptation where people... Uh, don't only get their visual the visual feedback of, of the reaching movement where we introduce for example a visual displacement or we can introduce a force a, new, a novel force field but also then we'll give them reward or punishment so based on the amount of error in their movement they'll get a certain amount of reward or they'll get a certain amount of punishment where they're either gaining money or losing money and what we found is that with a sensory mode adaptation that both reward and punishment influences learning so it specifically but others have found slightly different results where in essence both speed up your performance so it makes you move fast uh, it makes you learn faster it seems that punishment seems to make you learn faster but then reward makes it things um, makes you remember things for longer in terms of the punishment context and maybe we'll go back to this in, in future questions it seems it has a stronger effect but we think this is maybe due to things like concepts like loss aversion where you may be more sensitive to the to, the prospect of loss than you are to the, to the benefits of, of, of reward. Across all these different learning processes, similar results have been found where everyone in general finds that if you add reward or punishment to this to these other forms of learning, it speeds up the process. The results can be slightly uh, murky in the sense that it isn't consistent. There isn't this kind of clear story that I can tell you that reward mm -hmm. has this specific role, punishment has this specific role. It seems a little bit messy, but I think what the general result is that reward and punishment can have generally beneficial effects and performance. And it's just a relative to what specific task you're doing and how you're manipulating it as to what the results you see. But I think you always see that it influences performance. And I think that's probably the key result to remember. Mm -hmm. But I could imagine it it can also uh, be very, very harmful, correct? I mean, like, let's say if you are on a steep hill and then you get punished if you don't ski well and then you get scared, you know, and then once yeah. you get scared, uh, you'll make more mistakes, huh? And then that, that's, it's, well, and it goes both ways, actually, where this, this concept of punishment is kind of learned helplessness. So if you give too much punishment, people simply just give up. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so you, you can't provide too much punishment because, and we've kind of found that in some tasks that, you just end up giving up. They're just like, I'm, I'm done with punishment. I'm getting it so much that I will just not try it. But also in terms of reward, if you give people too much reward, they also give up because they're always getting reward. And, 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 and so it seems to be that you need to think about very carefully how much reward, and this is going to, going back to the concepts of Skinner and reinforcement learning, in terms mm -hmm. of the amount of reward and punishment you're giving, the uh, dictates how the influence you have in terms of how much people or how much maybe the animal 
uh, performs that task, but also the level of extension afterwards. Wow. Okay. Very cool. Now, uh, Joseph, you have a very strong neuroscience background. So, so could you tell our listener also which brain structures are thought to be responsible for the generation of what aspects of these types of motor learning? For example, you published a very influential paper with a subtitle, the motor cortex retains what the cerebellum learns. And my apology, and I know this is another very complex question. So, Sure. So, yeah, so each of these motor learning systems that kind of just explained have been related to specific brain regions. So, for example, in sensory motor adaptation, generally thought, well, the cerebellum is extremely important for this process, but also primary motor cortex and the posterior parietal cortex is also important. For sequence learning, you've got the supplementary motor area and the basal ganglia. Um, Reward-based learning, you've got mainly the basal ganglia. And then with declarative learning, you've probably got um, hippocampus and the frontal cortex. However, I think what's important to say is that even though these, again, these brain regions have been isolated because all of these learning systems interact and that they aren't independent, as we said, for example, with skill learning, you might start off with it being declarative, but then it ends up being a habit. And all these brain regions are heavily connected. It's quite difficult to isolate these brain regions. And as an example, if we go to the cerebellum and the cerebellum was always thought to be very important sensory motor adaptation. And it's thought to provide a prediction, maybe through a forward model in terms of the consequences of a particular set of motor commands. And that's thought to be extremely important with sensory motor adaptation. But there's also the cerebellum is also heavily connected, not just with the primary motor cortex and prior to cortex, but it's also heavily connected with the frontal cortex. So now there's kind of a new load of uh, work now suggesting that the cerebellum is also important, a thing like declarative uh, learning. And it's actually been shown that cerebellar patients who've got lesions of the cerebellum not only show impairment of the sensory sense motor adaptation, but also show impairments in declarative learning or it, the development of cognitive strategy. So even though it is, I think it's interesting and important to, to highlight that these brain areas are important particular forms of learning, it's also important, I think, to remember that they're heavily interconnected and, and that if you have a lesion of one, probably doesn't mean you have a specific impairment of one learning system. Probably That probably generalizes to, to other forms of motor learning which have connections with, with these processes. Very, very interesting. So basically learning is is how to learn, how to integrate all the different brain regions and, and, and work with them smoothly and, and interactively. So very, very fascinating. Now, let's talk more specifically about your paper that you published in the Journal of Neurophysiology. And to study the different effects of rewards, you designed a complex sequential motor task. And perhaps uh, could you explain the motor paradigm that you used uh, to the listener? Yeah, so uh, basically all my previous work has, has focused on singular reaching movement, so a discrete reaching movement. Uh, these are interesting, but they're also limited. And, and, and when we've looked at reward in the context of, of, of these kind of discrete reaching movements, we found that reward always has a positive effect. So it, it basically allows you to break the speed actually trade off where you can move faster, but more accurately. But when we look at trying to understand the mechanisms of this, they always seem to be quite uh, energetically demanding processes. So, for example, we, sh we found that when you provide a ward, you've increased the stiffness of their arm. And, and we think it's probably through co-contraction. So people, when get a ward, they co-contract. This reduces the amount of noise, increases the, the amount of control you have in your arm, which allows you to move faster, but more accurately. 
but also it's highly energetically demanding. And so what we found is that when you then remove reward, it's effectively transient. So if you provide reward in a trial, it makes you move faster and more accurately. When you remove the reward, those improvements are lost instantly. And we think that's probably because the processes that you require are so energetically demanding that you just don't want to perform that when the reward is no longer present. And But these are all very kind of discrete, simple reaching movements. And so what we want to look at is understand whether reward influences additional processes when we start to look at more complex sequential actions. And so this is kind of where we moved into. And so what the reaching task involved was eight sequential reaching movements towards these visual targets. And in effect, it was like writing the letter K. And the reason why we picked the this particular reaching movement is because um, uh, because of the basically the relationship between particular target positions and, and specifically between certain targets. Um, if you try, if you model the, the trajectories or the reaching movements that we think people should perform based on minimizing the amount of jerk or, or optimizing the amount of smoothness with, across the whole trajectory, certain movements should, uh, we should see this concept of fusion. What fusion means is that when people are making reaching movements towards two, two uh, sequential targets, you'll start off by making two discrete reaching movements with two clear velocity profiles or bell-shaped profiles. However, across training, what people will do is they'll start to treat these two movements as a singular action, and they'll stop moving at the kind of via target or the middle target and treat it as a singular action. And so these two velocity profiles will form into a singular velocity profile or they're fused together. And it's been suggested that this is this represents a kind of a, mo a motor primitive or a new, the formation of a new motor primitive. And the reason why people do it is because it optimizes or minimizes the amount of jerk. So it's the smoothest way to perform that action. And so it what it means is that where, if people use this process, it not only means people are moving faster, but they're also uh, moving, uh, a, move more energetically efficiently and so in effect when we're doing these two sequential reaching well these sequential reaching tasks would walk in a way affect two processes you could simply perform the eight movements and just move faster and that might be through things like co-contraction stiffness but you could also be using this kind of fusion technique where you're now fusing these movements and so reward is now not only making you move faster, but also making you move more efficient. And so this is why we looked at this kind of sequential reaching task, because it allowed us to look, look at more underlying processes, which reward may impact to, to improve the speed at which people move. Wow, Joseph, you know what? Uh, this, this is, I think, extremely relevant for, for uh, learning skills. You know, like I, my, my brother is a classical guitarist, and he told me that you know, some of his colleagues basically learned it the wrong way. You know, probably they, they had too much co-contraction. Mm. They had to totally unlearn everything because it was not sustainable. You know, they, they would have destroyed their tendons or whatever in the long run. And so they had to relearn a task in order to be more energetically different and reach a different level. So so probably it, it's really the reward can get you in the wrong direction, but then you have to get reward for unlearning, I guess. It's, yeah, it's, exactly. And, and so again, I suppose, again, it's what's highlighting is that when you're providing reward, it's to be careful what you reward and that reward <laughs> enhances performance, but you've got to be, you've got to ensure that it's rewarding the correct thing, I think, and the correct processes. And again, there's also what, you know, I think again, by your own did it's in the sequence learning literature that showed that if you, 
if you learn a habit, it'll, it, it takes a very long time to un, unlearn it and then to learn the optimal strategy. So, um, yeah, so, so you need to, I think, um, yeah, make sure. And so that's kind of what we want to look at. Is if, if you provide reward, what process does it choose and, and, and how does that then influence the, for example, whether you maintain those performance enhancements when you, when you then remove reward? Fascinating. Now, uh, in your paper, you demonstrate that performance feedback leads specifically to training-based improvements, while speed and accuracy was driven by monetary rewards. So could you explain the listener the different types of rewards that you tested? You know, there's performance feedback versus monetary rewards, for example. Yeah. So again, so, so again in our previous work, we've never really dissociated this uh, explicit reward with performance feedback. And so this is another aspect that we wanted to really look at. The way we did this is, uh, so when people moved into the starting box, the box turned yellow if it's a reward trial. Um, and that told them that on this trial, depending on your movement speed, you can get reward explicit, uh, you can get money. If you're only gonna get reward, so the reward only groups, that was the only feedback they got. So they then made the movement and then they only at the end of the experiment were told how much reward they got. So that was kind of something that they could, the reward could motivate the performance, but didn't provide them any feedback as to how they were doing or how to improve their performance. And then in the kind of performance feedback groups, people make their, made their movements and then they got a point system between zero and five points. And this is a closed loop design, which based on the last 20 movements, movement times, we then, determined how much feedback they got. So for example, if they got, uh, they would get 5p if their performance on this trial was in the top 90th percentiles of their previous 20 trials. So in, in effect, what it is telling them is that this is, this is your movement speed and this is how well you're doing in comparison to your last 20 trials. And so it gave them kind of informative feedback as to how, how they were doing and how to improve. And across our groups, we kind of had different mixtures of either reward only, either performance feedback only, or a combination of the two or, or neither. And what we found um, is that, yeah, so as, you can, as you've said, is that if you just provide a reward, you get this kind of instantaneous effect on, on behavior, in essence, on the, on the first trial. But then you don't really get any improvements across the rest of, of the training. Then, however, if you provide performance feedback, you don't get this in, instantaneous effect on performance However, you get this kind of learning related effect where you improve across trials. And if you provide both, you get both is kind of this additive effect where you see both. So in, in effect, it's the best thing to do is to provide both explicit reward and performance feedback. But our kind of suggestion is that the, the more effective way is the performance feedback. So the instantaneous reward um, is probably related to what we've just talked about in terms of this kind of possibly increased stiffness, increased co-contraction, where you're just, you've got reward on that trial, so you want to perform as fast as you can. But if you want these kind of learning related effects, you need to provide that reward in a context of performance feedback. So they need to understand how to improve their performance. I suppose the key thing to remember is that this performance feedback, you still see, see it without reward. So the explicit mm -hmm. reward is not essential for these kind of training related effects, but it does optimize it. Interesting. So you think that in, in the performance feedback, that's where punishment comes in. Let's say, as I said, you go down the ski, uh, hill with the skis. If you make a little mistake, 
uh, you will fall. You know, like you get basically your your punishment right away. Or if you play a sequence and then you you mess up, you have to start all over again. That's a punishment, I guess. So so do you think that performance feedback is in in the real life often associated with punishment or not? So I, I suppose I don't know. We'd have to mm-hmm. test that. I think it with our performance feedback in it, in effect, it was it was always rewarding in a sense. Well, so they could have got naught points. Ah, yeah, yeah, they you're right. Not, they never got minus better. points. Uh-huh. And, and so it's always kind of in a positive context. And so mm-hmm. um, what, what we have assessed is that what we generally see in these reaching tasks, that punishment does have a similar effect. But mm-hmm. also, again, in certain contexts, what we've talked about also is that the that you get this loss aversion, that, that people are, in essence, two and a half more times more sensitive to the threat of punishment than they are in terms of monetary reward or punishment, two and a half times more sensitive to punishment than they are reward. So mm. when you ask them to produce effort, they are a lot more willing to produce effort to avoid punishment than they are to gain reward. So you might predict that you'd get a greater amount of learning with punishment. But again, there's probably problems in terms of learned helplessness and stuff in terms of giving too much punishment, but we haven't we haven't tested that yet. So yeah, I, yeah. that's kind of just a guess as to what would happen if we were to provide punishment and maybe you know it's a mixture maybe the optimal thing is is to provide both because again that's what happens in real life is that you, yeah, yeah you get exactly you get reward so maybe it's you know I'm, and i'm sure that is you know in a, it's, it is to provide both to do yeah, one yeah. or the other it probably doesn't make a, a huge amount of sense to to not use both mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, i can see a lot of papers pu- published in terms of physiology <laughs> in the future uh, <laughs> Because I can imagine, like, you, you, as soon as you start getting punishment, you you probably promote co-contraction and and stiffness and blah blah blah, and then you're going the wrong path. So very fascinating. Now, in the in in your publication, you you talk a lot about monetary reward as an explicit reward. And now, for researchers studying learning and memory in animals, what does a monetary reward compare to? Like, uh, for example, is this like the food reward in an animal experiment, or or, or what do you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it is. So I would imagine it, even though it's, people think something people call food primary reward and, and money secondary reward because mm-hmm. it isn't directly rewarding in the sense of you have to go and buy what you actually want with the money. Mm-hmm. I think it does have that effect where it is, it, it's been shown that if you provide monetary reward, it causes a burst of dopamine, it activates the basal ganglia in humans. And so it has, I suppose, a very similar effect to these kind of primary rewards. And it's also con- context dependent. So, you know, with animals, you have to uh, reduce the amount of, of food or water before you want to test them. So they want it. And the mm-hmm. same with humans. So in, in, in some participants, £10 or $10 is a lot of money. But for other <laughs> people, it, it isn't. And so you get a, you get a, a range of variability where some people really care about this reward and really and really want it, but other people it really is. And we really find this when we when you start comparing or looking at old adults versus younger adults. And when we bring in older adults, they usually um, just because people who are willing to participate usually kind of well-off retirees. Uh, that money really isn't a particularly interesting thing for them. They're not doing it for that. They're doing it because they're interested in the, in the research. And mm. so in that context, reward isn't particularly beneficial. Yeah, I think let's let's come back to this because I, I find it very interesting, uh, this individual variation. But now uh, you, you have also other rewards like prestige or you know, non-financial rewards. And, and do you think there are analogs also in, in the animal world? Like, 
Like for example, I, I we had turkeys, like three turkey males, and they they spend so much time with each other, you know, with the males. Mm. They don't didn't care about the female, but but it seems like for them it was very rewarding to to get the prestige among, among each others, you know, like yeah. the alpha males. And how yeah. how strong is that as a reward? Yeah, well, so again, that actually brings back to interestingly to, to uh, uh, the, the stuff that we've done with stroke patients, where when we started to test stroke patients, again, they weren't really bothered about uh, money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and what we found is is that best explicit reward or reward for, for stroke patients is a leaderboard. They really cared about beating the other stroke patients. <laughs> and, 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 and so that's what we generally use um, when we test stroke patients is that we, we still use the point system, but we uh, it's not related to, to, to money, but it's related to we actually have a leaderboard in the lab. And, and that was, that's what really pushes them. And so I think, yeah, I think things, aspects like prestige are, are really important at forms of award and in certain groups it can be really really effective uh, and, and i think also maybe one thing to kind of highlight here is the differences between implicit and explicit reward where you've got implicit reward where you're you know just the feeling of wellness or grat- or well-being uh, and enjoyment of, of performing a particular task and the links between that and explicit reward are, I suppose are a little bit murky, but it has been suggested that if you provide explicit reward, it can sometimes it sometimes impair implicit reward. But providing uh-huh. money it actually makes you then uh, not enjoy the task as much, and that actually has a negative <laughs> effect in terms of how long you perform that task. And so I think it's quite important, and I think something for us to look at as well is to see whether I don't think money is specifically important, but we haven't looked at implicit versus explicit. It, it, in terms of how this affects performance per se, and especially in terms of the kind of sequential behavior. Um, and so it's a kind of really interesting area of research, I think, going forward. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. At, at one point, you know, like also the question, when do you become corrupt, you know, that you start uh, bringing, you know, money in the foreground or, you know, and, and, and things like that. So Yeah, I think that's actually interesting also giving people opportunities to cheat and things like that would actually be really oh my god (laughs) (laughs) very very cool yeah what does it take to start cheating you know yeah and how much yeah and how reward influences that and i'm sure it has a bigger yeah i'm sure there's lots of really interesting avenues for that again yeah like taking shortcuts and stuff in terms of learning would be kind of really interesting to 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 understand that because again i think it often has been looked at in things like decision making but pretty sure it has been looked at in the, con- in, in the realms of motor control and motor learning. Wow. You definitely never got I should there. be telling people on this podcast. I need to write a grant about it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Wow. Uh, so Joseph, let's come back to the role of the central nervous system and, um, and di- dive a little bit deeper. So what do you think a reward is doing, for example, to the motor cortex in terms, for example, of excitability and, and, and precision, you know? Yeah. So there's, there's been work using transcranial magnetic stimulation that has, uh, in humans that has, uh, I suppose, looked at the effect of reward on uh, motor cortex excitability. And it's been shown that it increases. So when you provide reward, it actually increases the excitability during planning. And that, that links to then faster movements during execution. We're actually running a study at the moment kind of extending this work and looking at intracortical excitability again using transcranial magnetic stimulation and looking at how reward influences 
inhibitory and facilitatory intercortical excitability during the planning of these kind of reaching movements. And it seems to be suggesting um, for a pilot study that reward seems to be enhancing excitability by reducing inhibition. And again, that's linked to these kind of fast movements. Whether that's directly because reward is impacting the motor, primary motor cortex, um, mm. I'm, I'm not sure, or if it's kind of an indirect effect, I'm, I'm unsure. But it seems to be that it definitely definitely increased the excitability within the primary motor cortex during planning. But And again, what that actually means, whether it's just an increase in drive, it is again, again a, kind of a future question, I, I think, because mm. I, I don't think it's really known. Mm-hmm. Joseph, and, and you know, the, the brain is a rhythm machine, you know, like all these different rhythms. And, and one of the ideas of the cerebellum is that it basically controls the timing, you know, because you have to synchronize all these different events going together. So, so do you think learning and, and rewarding affects, you know, the timing, the temporal precision between cerebellum and motor cortex and, and the other areas. Have you looked at this or uh, have people looked at this in general? I don't think anyone's looked at it in terms of timing. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I think the, yeah, basically all it's really been shown in, is in human medical, uh, human medical control that reward enhances the figure or speed of a movement. And you also see it allows you, it causes an increase in reaction time. I don't think there's been any work in, that has looked at whether it improves the your temporal precision or your ability to learn the, mm -hmm. the temporal relationship between actions. Again, there's work showing that that you get that the cerebellum is is sensitive to reward and that there's possibly projections of dopamine to, to, to the cerebellum. Mm -hmm. Again, whether that links between that and, and timing, I think it's a complete open question. I don't think there's been any work which is which has really looked at looked at that. I think all it's really been shown so far is that when you provide reward in a context of a task, that the cerebellum, you see, you see a signal in the cerebellum. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think a huge amount more than, than that's been done so far. Yeah, very, very cool. You know, this this leads me kind of like further along these lines, you know. So do you think a rewarding motor activity activates like the well-studied reward system like VTA, nucleus accumbens? Or are these rewards integrated within the motor system itself, like the motor cortex, for example? You know, where where, where does the reward come from? No, yeah, so <laughs> out of your comfort zone. No, yeah, and it's a really, yeah. it's an interesting question because again, there's lots of animal, so there's well, a fair amount of animal studies which are showing that you get so uh, that there's projections of dopamine to the primate cortex, and that if you disrupt these projections, that you disrupt motor learning, and that also you get cells or neurons in the um in the primate cortex that is sensitive to reward so there is you know a suggestion that that it could be actually within the primate cortex that reward is in that is, is altering behavior but it's it's just, again i think it's still a very much open question as to whether this is occurring in the primate cortex occurring in the basic angler or or, or both Mm -hmm. um, we've done a again with this kind of task we've done we've done a kind of follow-on study where we've uh, looked at we've done a pharmacology study where we've disrupted well we've given people a dopamine medication which disrupts dopamine functioning and we found that the effects of reward are disrupted so the the instantaneous effects of reward are disrupted but the effects of fusion are, are, are so fusion's unaffected so what this suggests is that this instantaneous effect is dopamine related Unfortunately, we don't know whether that's the basal ganglia, the cortex, or both, because the mm -hmm. drugs in humans is very much like a sledgehammer. 
where you disrupt everything in the brain, which is dopamine related. But the effects of fusion, which I think is kind of surprising because we expected that to be dopamine related as well, because it's very similar in effect to things like sequence learning and chunking. And that's been shown to be very much related to, to the dopamine system and, and to be impaired in Parkinson's disease patients. But we found that the kind of the fusion training related effects and the effects of performance feedback on these on fusion is really unaffected by the drug. It's only kind of the it's instantaneous effect of reward that was affected by the drug. So it's kind of it's, it's an open question, and we'd love to do these kind of studies in a, um, like imaging while we're doing these kind of drug related effects. It's quite difficult to do these tasks in a scanner because you get so much head movement that that's a big problem. It's because people and because people are trying to move as fast as they can, you get lots of head movement. So it's very kind of problematic to put these kind of tasks in, in a in a, an MRI scanner. Oh yeah, and maybe you want to do like MEG, you know, like because who knows whether getting precision in timing is pleasurable like that wow suddenly you know like all my my gamma rhythms are, are synchronized or whatever perfect and that's your pleasure it's not the dopamine burst you know so yeah, yeah. definitely and yeah and so that that's also that so the, these are kind of things that well we've got a new PhD student starting uh this autumn and that's kind of questions to look at these kind of questions with MRI and and, and MEG and possibly even we've got at Berman we've got a new uh, OPM MEG scanner. Oh, cool! And and uh, and so that allows you to to uh, have a lot more head movement, and so should allow us to be able to perform these tasks and also look at, at deep brain structures with spatial precision. Uh, yeah, uh, may, maybe more than what you can do with Meg. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, like maybe also animal research, but in animal research, you know, as I said, you you have a different set of of rewards, and and probably not you don't understand what what that really means to the animal whereas in a human you know you know mm -hmm. yeah so again we've been thinking about trying to find similar tasks across humans and animals in terms of these kind of sequential reaching tasks and there are there are some animal studies that have like the, you, you, they get rats to do this kind of sequence they do like mm -hmm. multiple lever presses and they've shown again that the basic angling is quite important that you can like learn these tasks And then once you've learned it, the primary cortex isn't important, but then the basal ganglia is. And so it, it's kind of understanding that. But again, I don't think they've looked at in terms of reward, how this influences these kind of this kind of learning. But there do seem to be some kind of new uh, animal tasks which have a close relationship to these kind of sequential reaching tasks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let's come back to the to the timing of the learning. Like you find that monetary incentives reduce motor time early during the training period, while accurate uh, performance feedback led to training-related improvements in motor time, irrespective of reward availability. So, and this to me seems to have real-life implications, like a reward can help you overcome the huge difficulties associated with learning a new motor task, like learning how to ski, how to play piano, how to ride a bike. But once you know the task, it is fun to improve accuracy, irrespective of a reward. Did I get this right? Is this how you think about it, or? Uh, I, I, yeah, I think I, I suppose I think it in a little bit of a different way. Where I mm -hmm. think I'd, I'd say that in terms of this explicit reward, I think it has an instantaneous effect on performance. But I don't think it matters when you when you provide that reward. So if it's a task that you that you've never experienced, you'd have, mm -hmm. this, you'd have this instantaneous effect. But also, if you gave someone gave someone explicit reward on a task that they've performed for years. 
I also think it'd have an instantaneous effect. And that's what we've kind yeah. of found mm-hmm. with kind of single, single reaching movements. It might not be a very uh, nice process. For example, you might be thinking see, see co-contraction or increased stiffness mm-hmm. to cause this increased uh, performance. But I, I'd imagine that if you want this kind of very quick performance, you provide explicit reward, but it, it doesn't matter when you give it. If you give it a new task or well-learned task, you'd still see this performance increment. Mm-hmm. I think then in terms of you, I think for learning a new task, I actually think the performance feedback is probably the more important aspect in, in, in the sense of what it suggests is that to learn, I suppose, the task, the, the, the process or mechanism that is the most optimal to perform that task, that, that, that informative feedback is the most important thing. And this, this doesn't have to be reward related. Reward optimizes that process but you, you still get it even when you don't have reward. And so I think mm-hmm. it's probably like if you were to perform a new task is, is explicit reward, you get this instantaneous effect, but I'm not convinced that that would be a long lasting effect or, or effect that you'd particularly want unless all you want to improve is performance in a very short period of time. Interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, let, let's, I would like to come back to this individuality, you know, like uh, having spent hours practicing piano as a kid, I kind of have firsthand experience how critical positive feedback is for learning a musical instrument. Now, however, there are major individual differences, like there are some children that you have to beat to not practice an instrument, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and they become ultimately musicians. Why other kids, you know, they need a lot of incentive to practice. And, then, and I always wonder why, for example, getting a good intracellular recording for me personally felt so rewarding that I became an electrophysiologist, even though it's really kind of a boring thing compared <laughs> to, let's say, piano, you know. And uh, whereas the majority of people probably get much more excited playing a beautiful piece of Bach or, or uh, learning Stairways to Heaven by Led Zeppelin, you know, like... <laughs> Like, where is that individuality coming in? And, uh, and looking at your data, there was also considerable individual variability. So, mm-hmm. so I guess not everyone responded. And we talked about this already to monetary rewards in the same way. And did you try to, to study this individual variability? And, and, and yeah, and how generalizable is this? Yeah. So, yeah, so we have not specifically so much in this study, but we have in previous experiments and studies looked at the individuality of reward sensitivity. Yeah. Uh, and we found, you know, it's a very general uh, number, but about 20 to 25% of people just aren't sensitive to, to this, this explicit reward. You provide reward and it has no effect on performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and this has, I suppose, big implications when you only provide reward feedback. It really means that these people just don't learn. Well, these other mm-hmm. people learn and can learn with reward-based feedback. These people just have this kind of flat line and it doesn't matter what you do, they just have this flat performance. And we've related to some cognitive processes like working memory capacity and stuff like that. But the, I suppose the, the other point is this, that this is 75% of people that are sensitive to this explicit reward of the money. It's an amazingly consistent effect where when we test them across five sessions, the effect is very robust where we see it every single time across five sessions. Ha, so it seems mm-hmm. to be that you get this group of people that aren't sensitive to reward. And that might be because, as you said, you know, for them, an extra five or 10 pounds just doesn't mean anything to them. It's not particularly important. 
Um, it might be something kind of more fundamental that I don't know they've got altered levels of dopamine or something but we've never really so we try we've tried to understand that so we looked at genetics to try and look at this this this, this group of people that were and in, in hundreds of people and we you know, and we found no link to genetics so dopamine related to genetics we found no link there the only thing we could find is that they had reduced working memory capacity so we're supposed a little bit unsure why we get the separation but then the people that are sensitive to reward are really sensitive to reward and it's a really robust effect um but yeah so we definitely do see a separation in, in, in people and again we saw that here even in terms of of the of fusion so we you definitely see you see a group of people that fuse their movements and you see a group of people that don't fuse the movements and even if you mm-hmm. tested them across three or four days and they know they just never fuse so it just seems to be that in some people you get this natural process and they're their motor system seems to know how to optimize their performance and other people uh, unless you, i imagine you provided some kind of teaching signal or coaching signal they wouldn't they don't know how to to to, to learn to fuse their movements so there is the, yeah. and we don't really know why uh, and that's the kind of key things we don't know why some people can fuse their movements and why some people don't yeah i think you know like this is this is what you call kind of like talents or like like you know when you're a kid you know you have to learn what what excites you what what is motivating or rewarding for you and yeah. and, and i like for example i mean like i often thought like becoming a scientist you know like you probably don't respond very well to monetary you know rewards you 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 yeah. you do science no matter what money you earn and I often thought like if I fail as a scientist, at least then I get rich, you know, or something like this. And, <laughs> and the same thing is like with musicians, you know, clearly not driven by monetary reward. And so maybe really it's a, it's an important kind of topic for children or, or uh, young adults to, to know what is it actually that drives them, you know, and it will be very. Uh, yeah. And, and I think, because I think again, suggested how how this can maybe inform things like school and things like that i think within school you have all this process where you know in my school you had this gold star system where you had people you had six stars on a wall and every time you did well you got a star and again for me that worked extremely effectively like i always wanted to get as many stars as i could but <laughs> for other people you know it's not going to have any impact on their behavior or, or their performance at school and so again i completely agree it's very much an explicit reward for one person is not an explicit reward for another person. So it really, and again, we found that going back to the stroke patients, that that using explicit money or a monetary reward is not effective. But but putting it in a kind of social context where they're kind of competing against other people really was an effective explicit reward. And so it's really mm-hmm. important to understand what yeah, what motivates someone. Yeah, and some people might respond better to punishment, I guess, you know. And, and yeah, yeah. And to be honest, I, I like my son uh, gave me this uh, app, and it's called <laughs> the the Pocket Whip. Yeah, and and the, yeah, exactly. And there's like this <laughs> this Pocket Whip where right? <laughs> so. So clearly, I think there are cool tools to to study. Uh, you know what is rewarding, what what works for for people. So now let's assume that a, a basketball or a football coach or a piano teacher listens to this podcast. You know, what advice would you give her or him to best motivate students? Would you pay your students for each successful free throw or you know successful trill or whatever? Uh, so so where 
where does this individuality come in that a teacher really has to have the sense for, you know, talents and, and you know? But I, I, I think one of the key things is, is for kind of the um, for long-term improvements in performance that are maintained, you know, even when you remove the award, it seems to be that it, um, informative feedback is 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 the best way of providing this reward mm -hmm. and so the explicit reward is maybe not essential but having feedback which is and again go back to the kind of even the gold stars in in a classroom scenario mm -hmm. is to make sure that when you're providing these kind of gold stars that you're providing feedback as to what people have done and how you'd maybe improve it going forward so that you they they know how to improve their performance um, in the future and the, and then mm -hmm. there's a kind of improvement in performance so given this kind of blanket explicit reward I think is maybe not the greatest idea it has an improvement yeah. instantaneous improvement but I think if you um yeah and again probably I'm guessing it's the same with punishment that you can probably have this very instantaneous effect on behavior but you need to very much link it to informative feedback on performance to have yeah, it to, yeah. to ensure that it has a long-lasting effect and if you don't if you don't combine the two then i think you can have an instantaneous effect but these effects are lost and may be linked to kind of these negative mechanisms which aren't probably things that you want to promote mm, that's probably why not everybody is a good teacher or a good coach you know that that they are so rare because yeah, they, I, they I think, yeah, know it's exactly easy to shout at someone and then not to provide that informative feedback for example uh or you know or, or to reward something someone but not to inform to to provide that feedback as to why they're being rewarded and how to improve, you know, how, how it relates to their performance, I think is really important. Yeah, or the sensitivity to to know, okay, this this does work with this child and, and this exactly. does not yeah, work, yeah. you know. And, yeah. and I mean, like, yeah. I see this in my lab, you know, like what works with one postdoc may not work for the other. And so it's it's like a real close relationship between the coach and and, and the yeah. student and and uh yeah, it's 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 a fascinating topic, and now it becomes also very clinically important, you know, for rehabilitation. So, so what are the implications for rehabilitation? You know, like after stroke, for example. And yeah, well, I think I think kind of two things from that is that it, what's also surprised me is the complete independence of 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 link or links between more of these more applied situations and the motor mm -hmm. control, motor learning field. So again, there's kind of books and whole streams of, of information in, in terms of coaching and that side of it and even in, then in terms of rehabilitation and it doesn't seem to be a huge amount of, of linkage between that literature and the motor control and motor learning literature so yeah ah. as a side thing I think it's really kind of interesting and and I actually uh, when uh, developing these ideas I actually bought these kind of coaching books because there's all these kind of concepts like 80 20 reward that you should provide 80 yeah, 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 yeah. Uh -huh. punishment when you try and find a, an article which provides any information as to why that's the case it doesn't add, it just it's a bit of a, a folklore i think i don't think there's uh -huh. kind of any evidence that that's that's actually or people really looked at it in in any fine detail and so yeah so i think that's one aspect but in terms of rehabilitation again i think it's um we're actually kind of looking at some of these questions at the moment so we're looking at reward sensitivity in stroke patients before and after it's kind of three-week rehabilitation intervention that that's provided at, at, at a hospital nearby. What we've found so far is that that 
stroke patients are, I suppose, unexpectedly or expectedly sensitive to reward. So it, it, it can enhance their performance, but that it has a negative effect on accuracy. So while healthy controls in older adults can seem to move, move faster, but also can main, maintain or improve their accuracy, stroke patients don't seem to have the control mechanisms to, to do this. So they yeah, can move yeah. faster, but it has a really negative effect on accuracy. And so again, it, it provides a kind of uh, caveat or an interesting question that we have to think about when putting this into stroke patients that you can make people move faster with reward. It definitely does that, but we need to think about how we can do that whilst not having a negative impact on their on, on their accuracy. And, and so, yeah, so it's really thinking about whether we can maybe provide feedback that can, or uh, some way, having the positive effects of reward without having a, this maybe negative effect of, of reward. Mm-hmm. And again, it just really highlights that we have to think about it, I think, rather than just providing blanket reward that you had to really think about what the reward yeah. would give. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and what that patient can can do. Like, I mean, yeah. if you think about cerebral palsy, you know, they, they have all these co-contractions, these spasms, and, 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 and so your focus has to be Exactly, like, and you have to be really careful. To, exactly, if you, if you give them a ward and all it's doing is increasing stiffness, do you really want to do that to be, give, to give, be giving mm-hmm. that to stroke patients? Um, where you want to be, yeah, even in stroke, you get kind of a lot of co-contraction. And, and so it's not something that you want to be promoting. And, and, and so, yeah, so it's knowing what reward does, making sure that it's, it's benefiting the aspect of behavior that you want it to benefit. Yeah, and I think for a teacher, basically, it will become important that that every aspect of 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 your motor system responds differently and can be controlled by different rewards, you know, or or punishment or whatever, you know, and feedback and and that it's just not a simple thing. Oh, I reward you for that movement. It's it's what aspect do you really want to train? And and and, so, and yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think I think yeah, you really need to know what the outcome you want is, and then kind of work back from there. I think mm-hmm. rather than just okay, we're going to because you know is that even if we were to just look at stroke patients, we could easily just say okay, we provide reward and it makes them move faster, and you could stop there. If you don't want, if you don't look at the underlying mechanisms, that could be okay. That's great, but I think you didn't want to you want to ensure that 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 improvement in, in in movement time is happening through a mechanism that you want it to happen through. Very cool. Now let's come back to your specific project. So. Where do you go from here? You know, where what are the next steps? Also, you know, your team, you know, like what what do you think uh, you want to study as next? So I think there's probably two key aspects. One is uh, what we've kind of touched upon already is that uh, to kind of follow this thread and, and understand the neural mechanisms of, of reward-based performance. And so we're, we're doing that through mainly through uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation where we're assessing through paired pulse TMS and and repetitive TMS in the role of the primary motor cortex in enhancing performance. Uh, and so we're looking at during planning, but also through, through executions. So there's that one aspect where we really want to kind of understand the, the role of the primary motor cortex in all based performance and, and the neural mechanisms in general. And the other bit is kind of, I suppose, going off in a little bit of a different tangent and to really start to understand this concept of fusion. Uh, and, and really because there's a fair amount of literature which suggests that this this fusion is a new is it represents a new motor primitive and behaviorally this is definitely what it looks like once you get to fuel fusion and people you do see that in people it really looks like a singular movement in terms of velocity profile in terms of a trajectory but what's been suggested is that um, in animal 
mainly in animal work, but in more sequencing work, is that if you look at these kind of actions in the brain, they're never represented as a single action in the primary motor cortex. You always still see the two individual movements where the first movement is planned before the first movement begins and the second movement is planned towards the end of the first movement. So even though behaviorally they look like a fused movement, neurally they're still represented as two individual uh, actions. And so we want to kind of explore this in more detail and see whether this really is the case that that you never really see a new motor primitive for these kind of sequential reaching actions, whether it's always still um, controlled as individual actions. And that has, I suppose, implications for things like rehabilitation, where the thought is that what you're trying to do is when these kind of sequential movements break down, you're trying to form them into a holistic action again mm-hmm. well that's a little bit problematic if the brain never looks at this, these as a holistic <laughs> action in the first place mm-hmm. and so yeah. maybe you know it's okay just to keep them as a segmented behavior and just to train on these individual components because the brain never thinks of them as as a combined movement anyway mm-hmm. and so it's kind of looking at that in a little bit more detail and trying to understand whether we really do ever see these kind of new primitives forming in, specifically in the primate cortex and I think that's where the MEG might be very helpful, correct? Because you have exactly. temporal and spatial resolution, and, and yeah, to, to get that call. Yeah, so yeah, so it'd be kind of looking at these actions, and and yeah, look. Uh, one idea is to actually kind of combine MRI and uh, MEG, kind of through kind of mm-hmm. uh, these kind of representative similarity and analysis um, methods, and so you've got kind of spatial and temporal precision. Fascinating. Now. What are the important take-home messages that you want to listen up to remember from that talk? So I think probably two main things. One, that explicit reward and performance feedback have dissociable effects on motor performance and that, and that you need to kind of appreciate this when providing reward in a, an experimental but also applied context. And that second, movement fusion is an important concept in motor control that is not well understood at both a behavioral mm-hmm. annual level. And then I think it's something that moving forward should be investigated more. Yeah. And basically the fusion is how, how do you interact these different and combine these different neural systems in a way to, to yeah. form a, a, a motor system. Yeah. And, and yeah, how, how are they linked? Because in, again, I suppose quickly set, suggesting that in front of cortex and, and areas these are definitely seen as a space of singular act. so when you look at chunking and things like that mm-hmm. you see sequence representations in the frontal cortex but once you get to the primate cortex they're then treated as individual movements but then when you get to the behavioral component they then look they're then seen as fused movements you get this kind of fusion independence fusion hierarchy and it just seems a bit weird to me that that's the case wow <laughs> um, yeah. but you know what so, and i think like uh, almost a motor system is a perfect system to learn this because you have to have high precision. You have a good readout, you know, which, which is way better that, than let's say cognitive task and, 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 yeah. and rewarding cognitive tasks. So I think it's, it's kind of a gold mine to understand how the brain works. So. Yeah. I completely agree. Yeah. Joseph, that was a lot of fun. And thank uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I learned so much and hopefully the listener also enjoyed it. And uh, and I look forward to to many more papers in journal of physiology. Okay, so we can do more podcasts. Thank you very much. Okay, Joseph. Thanks. <laughs> 
Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.